They don't come here to attack us because we're rich and we're free. They come and they, and they attack us because we're over there. We don't need to go populist left or populist right. We don't need to embrace neo-Marxism or neo-fascism, these disastrous movements from the 20th century. Turns out the answer is pretty much our Bill of Rights, our story. Embrace freedom. That's the answer. And if the LP has a purpose, it's not to put people to sleep. It's to wake them up. We're here because we love liberty. And we're here because we hate injustice. We are here to save mankind. We are here to fight. Join us, the Libertarian Party, in perhaps the most exciting, grandest endeavor in history, the restoration of American liberty. Ideas spread, they can't stop them. An idea whose time has come cannot be stopped by any army or any government. Hello and welcome to episode 35 of Decentralized Revolution, a podcast from the Libertarian Party Mises Caucus. I'm Aaron and I'm your host. Thanks for tuning in. I'm really sorry it's taken so long between uh, episodes, episode 34 with John Bush. Um, I thought I had someone lined up for about a week ago, um, but that did not materialize. So um, I'm going to try to get at least seven or eight episodes done before December um, because the Mises Caucus, we've kind of decided to take a hiatus for that month so we can all recharge for 2021. Uh, if I get, if I'm able to get more done, uh, before then, uh, I'll just, you know, space them out a little more. So we may have episodes in December. Um, and, uh, if you, if you have any suggestions on who you'd like to have, uh, to hear, uh, as a guest on decentralized revolution, uh, just email me at communications. That's communications with an S at lpmesiscaucus.com. You can message me through the Mises Caucus uh, Facebook page or message the show on our new Twitter account at Decentral Rev. That's Twitter at Decentral R-E-V. Now, on to today's guest, Scott Horton. He's one of the favorite people uh, of us here at the Mises Caucus, and he's the recipient of the 2020 Take Human Action Award from the Mises Caucus because he's the best voice we have on the most important issue which is the American empire and its destructive wars all around the world. Um, one, one note about this show, uh, Scott was unable to do video on the day we recorded. We usually do a video version that we put on uh, Facebook and YouTube. Uh, Scott could not do that uh, on the, the day and time that, that uh, he could fit me in. So I, I might not do a video version of this episode unless I can figure out a way for it to be something other than, you know, my face listening to a blank box for an hour. Uh, but uh, we will have links uh, and info for this episode of some of the things that Scott mentions up at decentralizedrevolution.com slash 35. Now, I hope you enjoy my talk with Scott Horton. All right, Scott Horton, welcome to Decentralized Revolution. Happy to be here. Good to talk to you, bud. Yeah, it's always good to talk to you. And it's always uh, uh good to have some good news. We got good news this week after last Friday around this time, we got some, uh, bad news about Dr. Paul. And, uh, uh, are you as happy as I am that it appears that he's not going to be defeated by 2020? Oh, much happier than you. <laughs> um, listen, um, yeah, no, Ron Paul is the greatest American hero ever. And I think, 
you know, for people who, who saw that breaking news when it was happening and, you know, saw the video, I was in the middle of doing interviews last week. So Gilbert Doctorow is talking to me about Russia and I'm sitting here watching Ron Paul have a stroke on video at the same time. Uh, oh, I wasn't listening, Gilbert. I'm glad that you had so much to say. Um, but uh, so, yeah, it was absolutely horrifying. But then I had word pretty quickly through, you know, I know a guy who knows a guy kind of a thing. And um, I got word pretty quickly that he didn't want to go to the hospital at all. And he insisted on walking to the ambulance himself. And so on one hand, like, OK, tough, stubborn old guy who I respect so much for having that kind of character, but also he's not a fool. Right. So if he really was in bad yeah. shape at that point, he'd have just laid down on the damn stretcher. Right. So I figured already right there that that's a good sign. And then it was just what a couple hours later, they put out that picture of him in the hospital where importantly, the left side of his mouth was right where it was supposed to be. Yep. And so, okay, this is, and you know, I have this, uh, my private uh, Reddit group, um, of, you know, fans of the show and all that. And there were some guys in there who knew all about this, you know, oh, this happened to my dad last year and this kind of stuff. And so they started explaining the difference between, you know, what's called, it's not really minor, but what's called a minor stroke, which resolves itself quickly rather than, right. you know, the real bad kind. Yeah. And of course the guy's back on the air on Monday. I know that was great. I mean, for God's sake, man. This, when that popped up know. in my feed, I was like, holy crap, that's 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 awesome. So yeah, no, I um, mean Ron Paul, he he really is great. And um it it would be uh terrible to lose him, man. Yeah, I mean and, he and Dan are that show is one of the most important things going on in libertarianism. Yeah, he always does a great job. Um also you uh I'm intimately familiar with a book that you published uh, uh several months ago on Ron Paul. Why don't you tell people about that? Yeah, it was one year ago. Came out last September. It's called The Great Ron Paul, and it's the transcripts of all of my interviews of Dr. Paul from uh, 29 of them, from 2004 through 2019. And um, it's great. And it just shows that he's exactly who he seems to be yep. in all the best ways. And he knows everything about everything. If I ask him about Somalia or Korea or Ron yeah. or rock or whatever it is, he always knows everything about it. Yeah. Um, not and just the, good philosophically, but you know, really he could teach the subject on American foreign policy in all yeah. areas. Yeah. And one thing I really liked about the book was you would think that maybe a series of two, the same two people talking uh, together might be repetitive, but it was interesting to see that, you know, you would ask him about, Iraq in 2005 and then ask him about it again in 2010 and just seeing the consistency of his takes and the fact that he was always right about what was going to happen. The the book has a really nice arc to it that uh, I didn't, when I picked it up, I didn't know whether it would have or not. So yeah. I, I'm glad I, to hear you say that because it is a little bit redundant because I'm always telling him how much I love him and how yeah. he's the most important hero ever and all this kind of thing, which you can tell he hates, but that happens in every single chapter, <laughs> you know? And, yeah. um, and then, you know, we do go over the basis of the war on terrorism a few times, whatever, but you're right that, I mean, to me, I loved it. I thought it was a great read too. And, and I'm so proud that I, you know, have even such a tangential association with the guy that yeah. I was able to, you know, compile an entire book worth of, of these kinds of things, you know? So, yeah. 
Great. Yeah. It's, uh, it's good news. Um, I've got several, um, things to ask you about. And then I've got a couple, if we have time at the end, a couple questions from listeners I want to squeeze in. Uh, first thing I want to ask about is something that I know you've had a lot of interviews and updates on your, uh, your show, your podcast recently, and that's, uh, Julian Assange. I haven't followed that because it's so depressing to me that I just can't take that on. Um, where is that? Wh- how, what is his fate looking like now and what's been going on recently? Okay. Well, so first of all, the best coverage of this is by Joe Loria at Consortium News and Kevin Gostola. That's G-O-S-Z-T-O-L-A at shadowproof.com. And they are really doing the very best work. Oh, also um, Craig Murray, um, who's the former British ambassador to Uzbekistan, a famous whistleblower over their uh, cooperation and torture there. And anyway, we're running all of that stuff at antiwar.com, everything we can um, about the Assange case. And I've been interviewing Joe and Kevin both, and including also I've been interviewing some of the star witnesses like Clive Stafford Smith. And today I'm going to talk with uh, Patrick Coburn and um, Andy Worthington, uh, two great journalists who have relied on the leaks and that kind of thing. So, um, you know, one-stop shop for everything Assange, of course, is at antiwar.com there. Um, And so, you know, broadly speaking, go back to 2010. What happened was Bradley Manning, who is a specialist in the army, now Chelsea Manning, of course, um, liberated, uh, I'll call it leaked, the the State Department cables, which is hundreds of thousands of cables. Um, Also, the Iraq war logs and the Afghan war logs, which these are all secret and confidential level, not top secret stuff, sources and methods and CIA spies getting their throats cut and this kind of thing. It's you know, the Cipernet, which is medium level classification. And, but what they did was they really revealed war crimes and participation in war crimes, you know, direct and indirect war crimes by America in both of those wars, thousands of casualties that have been previously unreported and, you know, all kinds of things like that. And um, of course the state department cables and the Iraq and Afghan war logs combined are probably at least partial sourcing for tens of thousands of news stories that have been published since that time. I mean, they even put out the original Glassby memo from when James Baker state department invited Saddam Hussein to invade Kuwait in July of 1990. I mean, it was just the motherload. So great. And if anybody goes to wikileaks.org, the Iraq and Afghan war logs and the state department cables, they're all right there. And seriously, this is absolutely God's gift to journalism in the 21st century. And there's just nothing like it. And if you Google, as WikiLeaks reveal or State Department cables show or, you know, terms like that, which is all references to Manning's leak, then you will find tens of thousands of news stories that are based at least in part on the information in those cables. And it's all stuff that we had the right to know in the first place. Right. This is 100 percent an act of heroism on the part of Manning and Assange. And in fact, let me go. I'm sorry, because uh, it's important. We got time. Um, The reason Manning did this was, and we know this uh, for a fact, the reason Manning did this was because one, Manning was being made to participate in torture. And then um, two, um, we know that Manning had no ulterior motive beyond, as he put it at the time, he, 
as she put it, um, uh, trying to spur debate so that there could be democratic reform. In other words, like straight out of Thomas Jefferson's, you know, the reason we have our, we have the civil right of free speech, not just the natural one, but the reason in America that we prioritize free speech so highly as sort of the centerpiece of our society is so that we can be free, so we can have a check on our government, so we can throw the bums out, et cetera, like that, bottom line. I'm not saying I believe it all works very well, but anyway. And that was the motive. And the reason we know that is because Manning had been lured by a rat named yeah. Adrian Lamo, who said, not only am I a journalist, I'm also an ordained minister. So I'm double extra super protected from having to tell on you. Yep. And so go ahead and tell me everything. And then when Manning said, okay, I'm giving these leaks over to WikiLeaks, the rat, Lamo, went and told the FBI. And the FBI, of course, the first thing they did was have Lamo say to Manning, hey, why don't you sell these secrets to Russia or China and make some money? And Manning says, no, man, what are you talking about? These are war crimes. Yep. There's terrible things happening. The people of America and the people of the world deserve the truth so that they can do the right thing. Sell them to China. What are you talking about? This wasn't treason unless the American people are the enemy. And in fact, that's when Ron Paul, the great Ron Paul, coined the phrase, truth is treason in the empire of lies. Look at how they treat these men for telling us the truth. And they're charged, uh, you know, Assange right now to, I mean, Manning was already court-martialed and, and did time, was eventually uh, had her sentence commuted by Obama. But they're charging Julian Assange under the Espionage Act. And uh, our Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, says that WikiLeaks is a non-state um, I'm just trying to remember the entire phrase. It was like a non-state aggressive or, or enemy intelligence agency. Okay. Which is just a made up term for a journalistic operation that we don't approve of publishers yeah. that we don't like. And so he's being charged under 17 counts under the espionage act. And in a way that is blatantly unconstitutional is blatantly in direct contradiction to the first amendment in a way that, Woodrow Wilson's 1917 Espionage Act has never been used before. They've right. threatened to use it a few times. And now just rewind one presidency. Barack Obama prosecuted more sources, more leakers and whistleblowers under the Espionage Act than every other president before him combined. OK, yep. but he did not go after the publishers. I mean, he actually did investigate one, for example, a, a Fox News reporter who had uh, reported on Korea, he had him investigated, but not charged. And they have, they have um, uh, definitely gone after leakers in the past, but publishers know. And so they're having to try to twist this whole story and make it seem that Assange is not just the New York Times only different, that Assange is a co-conspirator with Manning in stealing the cables and breaking the law and hacking the computers to take the cables, which is just completely not true. Right. And uh, and we know that now because the recent news that you're referring to here is that there has been for the last few weeks a series of hearings going on in England considering whether Assange should be extradited to the United States to face charges under the Espionage Act. And the defense has been allowed to put on 
a lot of great expert witnesses to completely refute this stuff. I mean, they have the great uh, free speech lawyer, Trevor Tim, who I talked to yesterday um, uh, on the show, which that should be posting a minute now, I guess. Um, he's up there completely debunking their theory of the law and about how this could apply and the way that they're trying to twist it and just totally destroyed them. And other witnesses helped with that. But then they had the forensic computer specialist who was a former military prosecutor or something like that, had, you know, the ultimate credentials, um, who went through all of the record of Manning's court-martial and showed that there was no hacking, that the only discussion that they had about, oh, here's some hash tables here and here's a rainbow table here and here's half a hash and see if you can crack this, it never went anywhere at all. And it was not directly connected to any discussion about how to get into the computers or anything like that. Manning already knew how to get into the computers. Manning already had full access to all of this stuff under her own identity and had a scam where she could put in a Linux disk and boot off the disk and have total control over the computer and bypass all the Windows passwords and everything to do whatever she wanted. And so um, this, you know, conversation about... Um, a half a hash that is worthless. You don't even have the other half of the thing. And then the rainbow tables or whatever is actually apropos of nothing. That conversation, it's just like, remember when the FBI lied about Maria Butina, the Russian oh. gun rights activist, and they tried to say that she was a honeypot and that she was trading sex for secrets with these Republicans and all this. And, and then they quoted her. Oh, I guess I owe you some sex now and stuff. But then it came out that, oh, they were just lying. They knew that they were completely quoting a joke out of context from years before. That had nothing to do with any of these Republicans and was so clearly a joke in context. That, you know, it was not. But they deliberately de decided to lie and twist and just pretend to believe that that was what was going on. Same kind of thing here. Oh, here's the word hash. Here's the word rainbow table. Let's just pretend like we believe that this has anything to do with the liberation of these documents at all. And then the defense witness just completely debunked that. So and then one more one more aspect I want to talk about here real quick, which is that the absolute barbaric treatment that prisoners receive in the United States of America is at issue in the court in merry old England about whether this man can be sent here or not. And we've had, you know, hours, at least a couple of hours worth of testimony about the horrors of the American Supermax facilities, mm -hmm. about the absolute, seriously, Nazi-like, and it sounds like it, doesn't it? The Nazi-like yep. structures around what's called the special administrative measures, which yep. is, you know, uh, solitary within solitary and complete cut off of communication from the outside world to the nth degree, like yeah. burying people in a medieval dungeon. And, and in England, the defense is arguing credibly yeah. that the American system of justice is so biased and so lawless and so barbaric that it would be against the law for yep. England to turn a man over to the Americans for the way we do it. And that of course is because of Joe Biden and because of Donald Trump and because of the way the criminal justice system has been in this country, um, you know, leading up to all of this for all Donald Trump's talk about criminal justice reform. He's just barely scratching the surface. Now, on could, the way business is done here. Could uh, Assange face the death penalty under the Espionage Act? Yes, he could. Although I am 
forgive me on this, uh, Aaron, but I'm I'm pretty sure that they have promised not to seek the death penalty because that would make extradition that much more difficult. Right. So I think he's only facing, you know, decade. You know, he's facing more than life in prison. Right. We'll right. give him 170 years or whatever. And they're talking about, of course, they want to lock him up in the Supermax in Florence, Colorado with Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, right. Ramsey Youssef, the guy that tried to knock down the World Trade Center in 1993. And, you know, these heinous murders, that's where McVeigh was before they executed him. And they want to put Julian Assange, this hero yep. who's guilty of nothing but publishing the truth because he's a journalist doing journalism in hell with them. And I think that uh, if I were his lawyers, I would argue that how much is the promise of the U.S. government worth, right? That like they would still they're not they wouldn't be. I mean, it might be. Uh, hard for them to do diplomatically, but they could technically still decide to uh, put that on the table once they have him over here and have him right. at trial. So, I mean, and just look at the fact that Barack Obama was, he had a grand jury, but he was afraid to use it. His yeah. people told the uh, media, they had what they called the New York times problem that, you know, get out your fillet knife. And still there's, you just can't split the difference between what Assange did and what American newspapers do every day. Yeah. You just, it's the same thing. And, um, you know, it, it's actually kind of amazing that they're getting away with this. And it's amazing the way that the media, that most media are going along with this. And they talk about, Oh, Trump's war on the media, which he does call him the enemy of the people, which is not far from the truth in many cases, but, they talk about, oh, Jim Acosta was censored at a press conference or something. Yeah. Let's throw a giant temper tantrum. But here they're trying to set the precedent that they can criminalize all national security reporting as espionage. Not the leaking of, but the publishing of yeah. leaked secrets as a, a crime, a felony. They're threatening to destroy national security journalism forever, as bad as it is. Yeah. Um, and replace it with nothing. Right. Yeah. And, and you can't get, uh, you know, they used to say, um, you know, you don't pick a fight with the New York times because you don't fight people who buy their ink by the barrel full. Yeah. Right. Cause they will bury you. Right. Well, where's the New York times on Assange, which go back who published all the WikiLeaks. Yeah. Assange did all of this in cooperation with the New York times, with the guardian at the time back 10 years ago, when this stuff came out. They published it too, and they can't stick their neck out for Julian Assange. They're not writing on the editorial page every single day that this is an absolute outrage and that if anything, Trump ought to be impeached for this, for having his Justice Department seek these blatantly unconstitutional charges against this publisher in this fashion. It, it's clearly, you know, um, unethical to the nth degree. Yeah. You know, yep. but. They don't have a word to say about it. And what is it that they think that, oh, well, Assange, he's the ugly scapegoat. So we're just going to let them get him and then we'll be safe. I mean, what are they thinking? It's crazy. Why would they be safe if the precedent is set that a publisher can be prosecuted? That means by definition, they at least have that hanging over their head. Even yeah. if an FBI agent never comes to, you know, Joby Warwick or Charlie Savage, uh, they know that it could happen. Yep. And, you know, if you thought they were already stenographers, you're right. Yep. Um, but uh, and in the case of Savage, I can prove it. Um, but um, I mean, it's as high as ethics to uh, be a stenographer. 
But right. um, imagine if they really knew for a fact, and it was true, that they could go to prison for any one secret that they published that crossed the government's point of view of what they should have written or not. When uh, when is this uh, going to be wrapped up uh, over in England, and what do you think the likely outcome is? I think there's supposed to be another week or two of um, of testimony, and then I think what's going to happen is the judge is going to, you know, hold that they can do what they want with him and and send him to the Americans, and then it'll go to appeal. I mean, the reality is that whether in England or in the United States. There really is no such thing as the rule of law at all. I mean, I know it's hard to tell that to people sitting in prison. There's some laws for them, but the rule of law means that these objective rules themselves are in charge of any individual or group of human beings in the society, including the government itself, that no one is above the law. No one has a license to kill. No one has license to violate people's rights. Yep. And, um, you know, once you get up to that high of a level where it's the people who actually exercise the power, then you find real quick, you know, immunity for any crimes that they commit. And also that they can stretch the law and twist it and apply it to people who are really not breaking the law if they feel like it. You know, it's kind of a, I've actually had in my cab one time, I had an FBI agent tell me this, but I had also heard of this just like, you know, like a proverbial quote or whatever, you know, like a kind of cliche that an FBI agent can just pick a random American off the street and put him in prison for 25 years. Yeah. Like, see that guy right there? I could find something on him and ruin him. They can go fishing on anyone they want and they can target and destroy anyone they want. And if they come directly up against the laws of the nation of Great Britain or even, you know, the Constitution of the United States of America, almost always it's no, you know, uh, barrier right. to them doing what they want. And so the fact that the, the defense has just completely kicked the prosecutions behind up and down for the last two, three weeks here and destroyed all of their bogus theories of the case and everything are no matter what she thinks literally in her own mind, no matter how impressed she is legally speaking, she will not be impressed by any of this. It's a foregone conclusion that she's going to rule for the state. But then, you know, as the lawyers I've talked to have been saying, Trevor Tim yesterday said that, well, you know, at least we'll have something to appeal on Yeah, because they really are making a great defense case here. And so if it comes, if it really is a question of the facts and the law, then he should go free. Yeah. But of course it's not. It's a question of politics and power. And so I honestly think that the most likely outcome here is that he will be extradited. He'll be prosecuted in Arlington, Virginia. So he has no prayer whatsoever. His entire jury will be all CIA officers and their wives and a bunch of crap like that. And I'll send him straight to the hole. And then maybe if we're lucky, the Supreme Court will spring him in another five or six years. Yeah. Maybe not. I mean, yep. maybe the Supreme Court will decide that actually the president can do this if he feels like it. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought earlier. I, I was I was trying to say that um, on on one of those things that they've seen what's happened with the change in power from um, Barack Obama to Donald Trump. That Barack Obama um, 
said he couldn't go through with this. And Donald Trump went ahead and and took the same case, the same grand jury, apparently. And and his Justice Department said, let's go ahead and go through with this thing. Well, you know, just like Kim Jong-un trying to figure out how to make a deal with the Americans. Our presidents leave every four or eight years and the policy can completely flip and switch back again. So, I mean, that might even work in our favor in this case. If Biden is afraid to go through with the prosecution and he wins the election, then, you know, maybe it'd be better for the uh, process to stay in England for now on, on appeals and all of that and see if maybe the, the case gets dismissed before it gets worse. But I don't know. I mean, Donald Trump should pardon the guy, much less prosecute him. I mean, this yeah. whole thing is crazy. Yeah, it is. Speaking of the New York Times, they had an article a couple of weeks ago. Um, uh, this uh, and that something that I've been hearing about on your show for at least a couple of years, talking about State Department officials have raised alarms about the legal risk in aiding airstrikes that kill civilians in in Yemen. And the Trump administration supposedly suppressed some findings. Uh, is that accurate? And what's the general update on, on on Yemen? And is there anything on the horizon that could improve that? Yeah. Um, well, so uh, first things first here, as far as that story goes, apparently that, you know, everything seems to be correct there. The Obama State Department and the Trump State Department lawyers said, you know, we could go to prison for this. Or maybe you could, boss. Right. And the memos were written, but then never submitted all the way into the actual stream where they're supposed to go, right? Yeah. You know, up the chain, whatever it was. They were written up and then put in a drawer, something like that. And then somebody leaked this to the Times. And it's funny because, again, there's no rule of law that can touch American war criminals. I mean, not above the rank of sergeant or something, um, you know, maybe a captain, uh, a, a couple have been prosecuted for war crimes in the most narrow sense, you know, deliberately shot an old man in the head, something like that, but sent them there to do that. Nah, yeah, you know? Um, so the idea that Pompeo, I mean, what court is ever going to try them? Right. And the whole thing is kind of silly in, in a way, but you know, it reminds me of, um, the the uh, um, I'm sorry, I forgot what they call him. Is it the justice minister in England? Whoever's the you know their equivalent to the attorney general? Yeah, I don't, um, I don't know. Pro it's probably is is it? It's not the home secretary. It's not under that. I don't think. I so. forget. Yeah, anyway, I forget, but it was anyway. They they uh, warned Tony Blair back in 2002, and Colin Powell did the same thing with George W. Bush. That look, we have to go to the UN, or we could go to prison. It's against the law to start a war without a UN resolution. That's the treaty that we signed. And so we can, even with a congressional declaration of war, it's against the law. And so we have to try. And then, of course, they ended up not getting the resolution and going to war anyway. Right. And then what happened? Nothing. None of them went to prison. But Colin Powell thought they might. Colin Powell told George W. Bush, we could go to prison. And that was the only reason they even tried to go to the UN. Uh, back in 2002, Dick Cheney, of course, wanted to just go right ahead. Yeah. Um, and I'm not a UN lover. I'm for abolishing the thing. I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying that's the law. And yet it doesn't apply. Right. And um, so, you know, in this case, it's kind of silly to think that they would actually be held accountable as individuals 
in the United States. If this was a limited constitutional republic, maybe, but it's not. It's a corrupt, evil empire where the leaders of both parties are all guilty of crimes against humanity and individual war crimes and on different levels. Aggressive war, authorizing torture, helping the Israelis colonize stolen land, and on and on and on down the chain forever you go. And and Yemen, you know, the most stark because Obama, Biden started it and Trump's continued it now for another three years after that and uh, three and a half. And um, so there are so many people who are guilty. I mean, can you imagine that you're going to put uh, Mike Pompeo and Susan Rice in prison for starting a war? Come on. Yeah. Silly. It's hardly even worth talking about. It just goes to show, though, their guilty conscience. And I guess it kind of goes to show their ignorance of their system that they really think that they could get in trouble. Don't they know that they can't get in trouble? That's what it yeah. means to be an American government employee. Yep. You yeah. know, if you're a sociopathic killer, rapist, you know, uh, whatever kind of criminal, you'd be nuts to not go and get a job working for the government. Right. You know, you could end up in prison or something if you don't get a job working for the government first. But you know what? I mean, I used to drive a cab and I never met a prostitute who hadn't been raped by a cop. Yeah. You know, and they're criminals. And if you're a rapist, you should get a job as a cop. That's the only way you're going to get away with it. I'm being facetious, but that's, you know, reality. And that's the same thing here with these people who have killed far more than 100,000, you know, probably a quarter of a million Yemeni civilians in the last five years, four and a half, five years. And um, they're absolutely as unaccountable as a member of the Austin Police Department who rapes yep. a hooker or kills a black guy or whatever it is. There is no law that, or a Mexican. There is no law that can be applied to them. Yeah. And um, so, uh, you know, that's basically the deal is, yeah, these guys are afraid of their own conscience is what it is. They're not really afraid of the Justice Department, but they know that if there's a God, that they're in deep trouble yeah. because what they have done is at least as bad as Iraq War Two. It's equivalent to Iraq War Two. Yeah. And they hide behind the Saudis and say it's the Saudi led coalition. But Aaron, who's the world empire and who's the client state? Yeah. You know, give me a break. Yeah. These people came the brand new defense minister and deputy crown prince Mohammed bin Salman came to Barack Obama and said, do I have permission, sir, to start this war? And Obama told him, yes. Now, who sounds like they're driving that car? Yeah. Barack Obama was the leader of the world empire at the time. Right. He could have stopped. Said, yes, go ahead. And as his own people told the New York Times, they knew that the war would be long, bloody, and I always say indeterminate. I always get it In, wrong. Inconclusive, indecisive. right? Yeah, long, bloody, and indecisive, meaning we don't even know what victory looks like. Right. We can't even tell you what it would look like if we did win, but we're going to start anyway. And we know that that even if we had an idea of what victory is supposed to look like, that we know that we're not going to get that. It is, it's going to be long, bloody, and indecisive. Okay, go ahead. Pull the trigger on that. Well, what the hell ever happened to the Weinberger Doctrine and the Powell Doctrine? I said, if you get into a war, you get in, you kick ass, and you get out. You start a war based on the premise that it will be an indecisive war? Well, you do you do if you're controlled by 
lobbyists from the defense contractors who want yeah. to sell to both sides in in long indeterminate. And look, things. and this is in 2015. Okay, yeah. so this is after Iraq went absolutely as horrible as it could have possibly gone. This is after the war in Libya had already gone as bad as it could have possibly gone, leading to civil war and the reinstitution of chattel slavery and everything else. And this is after support for the so-called moderate rebels in Syria had already blown up into the Islamic State, yep. necessitating the launch of Iraq War Three in August of 2014. Then three quarters of a year after that. Oh, another opportunity to get into a war that at best we know from the outset will be indecisive. Oh, okay, great. And here's the thing, though, Aaron, I think some listeners might be saying, what's Horton talking about? America has been bombing Yemen since at least 2009. Of course, George Bush killed an American in a drone strike there in 2004. But um, although I don't think he was the target, uh, careful who your friends are. Yeah. But anyway... Uh, this is not Barack Obama's war against Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. Yep. This is the war for Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. Because what happened was they bribed the dictator to let them fight the Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula guys, the guys who had bombed the coal, who had helped to coordinate the September 11th attack, who had done the uh, attempted underpants bombing over Detroit on Christmas Day 2009 had sponsored the Charlie Hebdo attack and other attacks in France. Uh, these are real-ass Al-Qaeda guys, dangerous Al-Qaeda guys. And so Obama and the CIA had a drone war against them, but they had to bribe the dictator did, to do it. And then he took all the money and guns Obama gave him, and he waged war over and over again against a group of Shiites in the north called Ansrallah, or a.k.a. the Houthis. And the problem was the Houthis won every time. The more he attacked them, the stronger they got. Just like the more Obama attacked AQAP down in the south of the country, the stronger they got. Well, then comes Manning and Assange and the uh, WikiLeaks, which helped to spur the Arab Spring in Tunisia, Egypt, and then the Days of Rage protests that spread throughout the region, including in Yemen. And somebody tried to murder the dictator, Saleh, and, uh, with a bomb. And as he was home convalescing, Hillary and the United Nations and the Saudis basically kicked him out of power and put his vice president in charge in a bogus one-man election. Literally, there was one man on the ballot in this election that Hillary praised as the advent of democracy in Yemen. And then this guy immediately turned himself into a dictator, stayed way past his term and uh, refused to hold any elections, uh, figured out ways to pick fights with the Houthis in various ways, such as a new strong federalism plan that would kick them out, you know, essentially separate them from the Red Sea and all of these things. And then the problem was when uh, the last dictator, Saleh, got kicked out, he didn't retire to Mount Vernon. He brought half the army with him, maybe two, two thirds or three quarters of it, and went and made an alliance with the Houthis, his old enemies. Turns out he wasn't part of their group, but he was a Zaydi Shia like them. And so, hey, guess what? Now you got the Yemeni army teamed up with their old enemies, the Houthi rebels, and they come and march on the capital and seize the capital city at the end of 2014. Now, when this happens, and you can read about this in Al Monitor by Barbara Slavin, and you can also read about it in the Wall Street Journal. Both articles are from January 2015. A little bit of Googling will do you some good. And you will see that uh, Michael Vickers, 
from CENTCOM, the Deputy Secretary of Defense for Intelligence, said that we're working with the Houthis. We like the Houthis. You know why? Because they hate Al-Qaeda. They are determined to eradicate Al-Qaeda. And so we're giving them intelligence to use to kill Al-Qaeda guys as part of our war on terrorism. That's in January 2015. That's CENTCOM talking to the press, saying this is what we're doing. Just two months later, Barack Obama stabs the Houthis in the back and takes Al-Qaeda's side against them. Because when Saudi and the United Arab Emirates launched their war, one of the first things that UAE did was bring Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula into their militias, arm them up, train them up. And they started seizing towns and entire tax bases, military bases and armories. And just there, nobody knows at the end of all of this, when the UAE finally goes home and the new improved AQAP is left over, it's going to be who knows how many yeah. hundreds of times more powerful than it ever was before. Well, because this war is literally treason. And at the same time, one more thing. They are deliberately targeting the civilian population. They always have been. There's just a brand new study that came out just last week about how they deliberately target the farms. They kill the flocks of sheep in the field. They bomb the grain silos, all the irrigation. They drop, you know, napalm, firebomb the crops. They do everything they can. They bomb the electricity, the sewage, the waterworks, even the hospitals. They have a massive cholera outbreak. Saudi, a.k.a. the USA, bombs the cholera hospital full of dying babies and there are you know approximately a quarter of a million dead civilians so far from this war and i guarantee you when the whole thing's over and they count up the excess death rate it's going to be a hell of a lot higher than that this is the worst thing that's happening in the entire world right now at the hands of the united states of america against a country that never attacked us the only yemenis again whoever attacked us they're the ones we're fighting for in this one And when they asked Donald Trump, how can you keep doing this? He says, do you know how much money the Saudis are spending on these weapons? And then he absolutely lies. Who knows if he even believes this? But then he turns around and claims the Saudis are spending $450 billion on weapons. Well, it's such a lie. It's like 25 years worth of promises of purchases, you know, way out. Total nonsense, bookkeeping crap. And then what if they were? You know, right. sell your soul for a measly 450,000, uh, 450 uh, billion dollars, yeah. you know, and make America into the country that did this to Yemen. Yeah. From now yeah. on, for the rest of human history, this is the thing that the middle part of North America has done to these people. And, and most of us not even taking a moment to notice. And uh, that's why I wanted to have you on, uh, even though that everyone else is talking about the election, because none of these foreign policy things are are really being talked about with substance. Uh, you mentioned UAE in there. Um, we've got about 15 minutes before you have to go. Um, give me a quick rundown on the Israel UAE peace deal. Uh, I'm sure a lot of people have heard about that. And uh, the, I think there isn't there talk of Saudi Arabia joining that or something. So ha- what do you think about all that? Yeah, they got so far they did UAE and Bahrain. And yeah, they're talking about Saudi. So the deal is this, and, and I highly recommend uh, Ted Snyder's great work at antiwar.com about this. Essentially, these aren't peace deals at all. None of these countries are at war with Israel or have ever been at war with Israel. The only thing that's happened is they're completing the sellout of the Palestinians. Not that it was ever really costing the Israelis much, but it had been that the official position of all the Arab states 
other than Jordan and Egypt was that uh, who already had peace deals uh, was that and they were actually former enemies in a literal sense um, uh, that none of the rest of the countries in the region would recognize Israel until they give up the West Bank and yep. the Gaza Strip and let the Palestinians have what's left, the measly stinking 22% of what's left of Palestine. And now what's happening is the Israelis are succeeding in getting them to drop that demand and going ahead and normalizing relations, dividing the Palestinians from the rest of the Arab states so that they can continue to steal their property. And it's as simple as that. Yeah. And, um, you know, Ted Snyder is really uh, smart about this because he talks about the much broader and longer term Israeli strategies. The very best book on this is Treacherous Alliance by Trita Parsi. It's all about it's all from the point of view of the highest level strategists in America, Israel and Iran, with, of course, the poor Iraqis stuck in the middle. Yeah. And, you know, 30 years of mostly the Israelis, but also the Americans switching sides back and forth and playing these different strategies in the region. And they started out, they had what was called the doctrine of the periphery. And this meant tight alliances with Turkey, Iran, and Ethiopia in order to keep their Arab states on their borders. You know, they're near abroad divided, keep their, you know, literally divided, you know, between East and Western uh, defensive positions, um, but also just divided politically in terms of various interests and who do you hate more this week kind of stuff. Yeah. And this was called the doctrine of the periphery. And this lasted from Ben-Gurion all the way through um, into Yitzhak Rabin in the 1990s. Then Rabin changed the policy and instead said, what we want to do is we want to make peace with the Palestinians on a limited basis. Now, I'm not saying that they were really going to let them have a true Palestinian state, but at that point, you know, Rabin was as dovish as any prime minister was in terms of that. And they said that um, we're going to have to get along better with the other Arab states. So, you know, and then, um, you know, really target Iran. And a big part of that was because even though the Israelis stayed friends with the Ayatollah's government after the 79 revolution, remember when Ronald Reagan sold missiles to Iran, he did it through Israel because Israel had kept all those relations running and all yep. of that. Yep. They didn't change their policy to be against Islamic fundamentalism until after the end of the Cold War, until yep. I think 93. Yep. And it was Rabin's policy. And as Trita Parsi reports in his book, um, quoting one uh, Israeli military strategist, that we needed a new glue for the alliance with the United States. If we're not here um, if we're not your best friend and ally here to keep the Reds out of the Middle East, what are we here for? Oh, I know. It's because of radical Islam. And so now we have to team up with America over radical Islam. And so, of course, Saddam Hussein was an atheist. <laughs> so we're not going to get very far with that. But we'll go ahead and turn on the Iranians. Um, and which was funny because even at the time, the Iranians were like, what? I thought we were friends. And the Bill Clinton government in Trita Parsi reports about this. The Bill Clinton guys were really kind of cynical about this. Oh, did you hear the latest news? The Israelis have decided that instead of their best friends in the world, that now the Iranians are their enemies. Oh, yeah. What happened? Nothing. Just somebody wrote a paper and they just, you know, they're like laughing about it. Right. There's yep. nothing has changed except that they just made a strategy. The Iranians never did anything uh, yep. to force that change. And um, so then this meant 
um, you know, again, uh, dividing the or, or, you know, allying with the Arabs against um, the uh, the Iranians. And that was also, of course, insisting on Bill Clinton's dual containment policy against Iraq and Iran throughout the 1990s, which is what got us attacked on September 11th, yep. uh, the continuing uh, blockade of Iraq and bombing of Iraq from bases in Saudi Arabia. Uh, when Bill Clinton could have made peace with Iran and Iraq uh, at the time that he came into power, but the Israeli lobby absolutely would not let him. And Martin Indyk, um, who was the one who came up with this uh, dual containment policy and all that. But anyway, so now this latest deal is basically, as Ted Snyder says, this is the Netanyahu doctrine. This is his you know, contribution, essentially, to Israeli strategic thought and on all this stuff. And that is... Instead of treating the Arabs as a block to divide them from each other and particularly divide them from the Palestinians. And so and and you got to love this. They encourage the UAE that, listen, if you make this deal with us, we'll get the Americans to get you some F-35s. So the UAE says, OK, which is really an albatross anyway, you'd be way better off yeah. with your F-16s. But anyway, um, OK, great. Yeah, you get us some F-35s. huh? Then the Israelis cry and go oh no we're against them getting f-35s we never wanted them to get f-35s well uncle sam if you're giving them f-35s then you have to give us even more money and even more planes in order to guarantee our uh military advantage in the region because now there's going to be a new arms race when we only are promised to give the f-35s to the uae so they would make peace this peace deal with israel in the first place then israel turns right around the same week Turns right around and says, that's why we need even more welfare from you to protect us from the UAE one day. It's yep. completely bananas. And but it's also how business is done. Got a got a couple of really quick hits, uh, listener questions if you got time and can uh, I know asking you sure, to I got be, eight minutes. Yeah, you got eight minutes and uh you I think you can do it. Um if the US ever gets out of the Middle East what's keeping China out? And that's from Ryan Roloff um, in the Mises caucus group. America's example. Okay. I mean, this is the thing. I mean, look, it's as any libertarian can tell you, it's been America's folly this whole time that we have to secure those resources. It's just nonsense. Yeah. As uh, you know, David Stockman never tires of screaming. The solution to high oil prices is high oil prices. Right. Isn't that Everybody David knows that, you know, da and so Dave, David Henderson, the economist says that too. Um, I don't know if it's the same, if they both say the same thing, but I know it's David not, not exactly the same, but he says, yeah, marginally we spend um, on the margin. We spend more on securing the oil than we spend on the oil. Right. You know, or at least, you know, the differential between the two, it just doesn't add up. Yeah. And and then so when you look at the military hegemony over the whole thing, the policy really is not even about hooking up Exxon, you know, which is always part of it. Of course, the, the oil companies have a lot of influence, but, you know, they really didn't want to do Iraq War II. That was an Israeli project far more than it was an oil company project. And what oil had to do with it more than anything else was military strategery, as uh, George W. Bush put it right. Not, uh, you know, oil company profits, but how can we cut off China? Yep. That was kind of the whole point in the first place. China has very little domestic oil resources. And 
the entire American project of dominating the Middle East could be seen as part of the continuing Cold War against China and Russia, even though we made peace with China in 1974 and with the Soviet Union, which ceased to exist uh, shortly afterwards back in 1988. Right. Um, and yet the game is full spectrum dominance and Russia and China are big and powerful and nuclear enough that they can maintain their independence from us. And that is at least over the long term intolerable. Yeah. We must have Yeltsin's everywhere. Mm -hmm. And um, so if we ever get into a conflict with China, we need supposedly to be able to uh, cut them off from those oil supplies. But those aren't my priorities. We should not be fighting China. We can't fight China. They yep. have H bombs. Simple as that. Yep. Okay. It's the same reason I can't fight you because you'd shoot me. So, okay. Well, I guess, you know, uh, that's it. Yeah. Uh, so instead, we just have to be friends. We got to figure out a way to work it out. And if they did take over the entire Middle East, then what, what yeah. are they going to do? Cut us off from oil? We don't need it. We live in North America. We're yeah. oil exporters again, hydrocarbon exporters at this point. And even if that wasn't the case, if it was back in the 70s, where whatever percentage was uh, that much greater uh, dependence on Middle East oil here, that can be corrected by market-based oil companies yep. in no time at all yeah you know expand drilling here expand drilling there there's virtually unlimited oil supplies in the world um and they're not all based in the middle east and so uh, there's just no reason in the world to fear you know even bin laden said to omar uh, uh pardon me uh abdel bari atwan uh who wrote um the secret history of al-qaeda who's the publisher of um Al-Quds Al-Arabi in um, London. He said, listen, this is like the old joke. He said, listen, even if we took over the whole region, it's not like we can drink it. Right. Of course, the oil will always be for sale. Yep. His only gripe was that the Bill Clinton government was forcing the Saudis to keep extremely high quotas. In other words, to overproduce, to drive the cost of oil artificially low in order to subsidize America's economy at the expense of theirs, which was 100% accurate. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying justifies murdering American civilians over it, but I'm just saying that was exactly what was going on yeah. in the 1990s there. Although you could argue that they were actually keeping the price of oil artificially high in another sense by keeping all of Iraq's oil off the market at the same time. So right. who knows what it would have been in a free market, but affordable. Yeah, affordable. We never needed. And, and, and look, Donald Trump said this himself the other day and it's completely accurate. We don't need to be over there for the oil at all. We never did. The only reason we're over there is for Israel. And uh, he says that like you're supposed to be happy with that answer. Yeah. That that's why America has to be in the Middle East. You mean overthrow Saddam Hussein and Muammar Gaddafi and Bashar al-Assad and, you know, the Houthis down in um, Yemen? We got to do all that for Israel. Yep. Um, let yeah. me let me ask you one more listener question. Uh, Will Hobson, uh, he had two questions, but we only have time for one. Uh, what does Scott think of the peace co of a, the chance of of starting a peace coalition with libertarians and greens, um, and getting the anti war movement kind of back up and and running? Well, listen. I mean, our ethic at antiwar.com is anti-war is as anti-war does that's it so we will run code pink and pat buchanan on the same day 
And that's always what we're about. You know, we are libertarians, but we are single issue. And, you know, frankly, there's nobody more principled than Code Pink. They've been absolutely great, even through the Obama years. Yep. You know what? I think like his first three months in power, they waffled a little and then they went, uh, and got their act right back together again. Yeah. Um, they've been great. And that's because they are far to the left of the Democrats. So they're not impressed with Democrats. And that's good enough for me on this issue. And um, we can disagree about everything else, but none of those things are anywhere near as important as America's relationship with the rest of the world, which is the single most important determining factor about how we live together here. And so, you know, how how to build coalitions, how to, you know, build a movement of something outside of a Facebook group where people show up in large numbers to demand specific anti-war things. I really don't know. Yeah. That's really not my specialty. And I really, you know, I think the Quakers do a really great job. There are some, there are more and more right-leaning groups like defense priorities and uh, concerned veterans of America and bring our troops home.us. Those guys are all anti-war veterans of yep. this era and are you know libertarian or right-leaning on the leadership level anyway um and you know there's still a lot of liberal and left-wing groups and you know we have seen even in congress man you know this chris murphy who's one of the absolute worst russiagate truther idiot yeah. horrible people in the world is actually great on yemen and has re and apparently really cares about it for whatever reason has decided that this really matters and he's right. And, you know, this sounds crazy. This sounds like something that I would have never believed happened. But both houses of Congress passed resolutions under the War Powers Resolution yep. of 73 demanding an end to the war in Yemen. Now, they could have just defunded the whole thing. But and of course, Trump vetoed it. They passed a, a continuing resolution instead of a concurrent one or I forget. Strike that reverse it. Which way is what? But one of them can be vetoed and one of them can't. Yeah. And they pass the kind that can be vetoed. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it would have been violation of the law for continuing the war. Yeah. So in a way, you could call it a PR stunt. But there wasn't much pressure for it. You know, there are anti-war activists only care about it. No one else even knows about it. Right. There's hardly a, a mass movement in America on this. Congress has pleasantly been out ahead of much of the country on this, believe it or not. And. So, and that means too that Mike Lee and Rand Paul and Republicans in the Senate and also in the House, although I'm not sure the names of who all in the House was good on this, but there were a handful of Republicans in the Senate who voted right on this, you know, the, liberta the libertarian leaning types. And um, so there is potential there, you know, and Donald Trump, he really does want to get us out of Afghanistan. It's clear. He gave a real mandate to Zalmay Khalil Zad that you work directly for me, not the secretary of state. And you have my word. I will support you. I want you to make this deal with the Taliban. And Khalil Zad did it. That says we get out of there by next May. Well, great. Great. Yemen next. Yemen now. Yemen first. Yep. Okay. And then so that's the deal, right? We, you know, we don't have to accuse the man of war crimes. Try to encourage him for continuing to do what he's already doing. He wants out of Afghanistan, less so out of Syria, but he's terrified of leaving Iraq. Everybody's going to say that's what led to the rise of ISIS, even though it was Obama's support for the terrorists in Syria that led to the rise of ISIS, yeah. not just the absence of American soldiers in Western Iraq. Um, 
and it was also the result of the absolutely horrible chauvinist Shiite government America put in power there, persecuting the Sunnis and also leaving their half of the country wide open to be taken over in the first place. But anyway, um, he's terrified to get out of Iraq. Um, Somalia, nobody cares about enough. That's on autopilot. The Pentagon wants to do it, so he won't get in their way on that. Uh, as horrible as that is, uh, it's also another completely unauthorized illegal war there. Uh, they claim they're at the invitation of the puppet government that they invented and installed in power. Please. Um, same as Vietnam. And anyway, so this could be the priority. This should be the priority. And this is my message to the Libertarian Party for the campaign. Now, I know that as one of the advisors told me, look, Yemen's not really an issue in this campaign. My answer to that is make it one. Yeah. It should be. It's the worst thing in the world going on right now. And Biden started it and Trump's continued it. Yeah. So let's barbecue these SOBs over this thing. Let's make it an issue. Let's get Donald Trump to blame Joe Biden for starting it. And then let's get Joe Biden to throw Barack Obama under the bus and say, no, I tried to tell him not to do it, but he did it anyway. Let's make them fight. Otherwise, what are we doing? What are we even doing? It's not like we're going to win the election. The point is we got to make our points made, a few of them. How about opposing the worst thing in the world first? You're right. Um, Scott, I could uh, talk to you for another hour or two, and uh, uh, I'll get the chance to do that at some point uh, in, in the future. But I, I know you have uh, stuff to do, and uh, I got to let you go. Uh, keep up the great work. Um, I think we... Everybody in the Mises Caucus, you're one of our favorite people. You got the our Take Human Action Award this year. People loved your speech uh, uh, that you sent to the convention, by the way. Um, and uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. And uh, I, I hope you're bearing up well under all this COVID stuff. Well, thanks, man. I really appreciate that. And I'm sorry, I, I meant to say at the beginning here, and I totally spaced out. I wanted to thank you guys again for giving me that great award. I really appreciate that a lot. It's right up on my mantle. It, it's, and, yeah, uh, it was a lot to me. It was an easy decision for us. So, um, cool. we, uh, yeah, we're, we take a lot of inspiration from Dr. Paul, but also I think you're on that short list of people that when we see you guys doing what you're doing, that inspires us to do what we're doing. So right on. Well, I really appreciate that. And I just realized I'm actually five minutes late for my interview and I really better go, but thank uh, you so much, Aaron. All right. See you, Scott. Bye-bye. And there you have it. I'd like to thank Scott Horton for being generous with his time and for all his great work over at the Libertarian Institute and antiwar.com, as well as on the Scott Horton show, scotthorton.org. I'll put some links to things Scott mentioned on the show notes page at decentralizedrevolution.com slash 35, along with a link to the video of his acceptance speech for the Take Human Action Award. Uh, I'd also like to thank Dave versus Goliath for all the music you hear on Decentralized Revolution. And I'd like to thank everyone who gives to Mises Pack at TakeHumanAction.com and everyone who shares, rates, reviews, and subscribes to Decentralized Revolution. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.